Well, welcome today. Glad to have you again as we are back into the Word of God. If you're new, my name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here at Ridge Church and glad that you are joining us, uh, especially if this is uh, your first time. Well, last week we began our series on sin and we began by talking about how among all of the troubles in the world, sin is the most serious of the troubles because sin causes destruction not only to an individual, to, to our own person, but to the people around us. It tears at the social fabric of the world around us. And ultimately, it wreaks havoc with our relationship with God. The theologian Cornelius Plantinga calls sin the main human trouble and the longest running of human emergencies. And he says this, that sin is desperately difficult to fix, even for God. Now, when he says that, it doesn't mean that, that God isn't able to fix sin. It means that because of the nature of sin and because of the nature of who God is, both his love and his justice, and because of the nature of who we are, the fact that we, by God's grace, have been given free will, it means that unless God is willing to abandon any of those things, he can't just snap his fingers and make sin go away. And the result is that the solution to the issue of sin that is destroying humanity and it destroys our lives is, is something that has cost God dearly. And so the Apostle Paul, before he, he launches into this sort of extended conversation about sin and its consequences and its implications, he wants to pause first and to remind us that there is a solution, that God has found and made a way for us to escape the devastating consequences of sin. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to talk about this word gospel an awful lot. And so it's worth taking a moment to understand what gospel is all about. Gospel was a common word in the ancient world. In fact, there's an inscription that was found on, a, on the wall of a, uh, of a building in a little village just south of the ancient city of Ephesus. And, and um, archaeologists have dated it to about 9 B.C. And the, and the inscription says this. The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of the joyful message. Literally the good news, the gospel, which has gone forth because of him. Now, the God that they're writing about is the Emperor Augustus. And they're writing about the good news, the gospel that came with his birth, because with his birth and later with his ascension to be emperor, he put an end to a brutal civil war that had been raging throughout the Roman Empire for decades before he came. And so the message is, look, there's this good news that put an end to all of this heartache and death and destruction that came before August, uh, Emperor uh, August Augustus, sorry, came on the scene. In fact, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, uh, this idea of gospel or good news often referred to the peace or prosperity that came to a people when their army was victorious in battle. In fact, not only that, but the, the Old Testament prophets used the same word and applied it to the work of God when, when the people of God would end up in all kinds of trouble and disaster because of their own decisions and God would step in and rescue them. That was considered gospel. Good news. Here's, here's what the prophet Isaiah says about God. Says this, uh, God says to his people, And now what have I to do here, declares the Lord. For my people have been taken away for nothing, and those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. And all day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people will know my name. 
Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. In other words, what God is saying is that his people are now ruled by a nation that, that, that mocks them and that blasphemes his name. And he says, and now I'm going to let them know who I am. I'm going to rescue my people from this slavery to this other nation. And so the very next words that the, uh, the prophet Isaiah writes are these. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, gospel, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. You see, the term gospel is about, about being rescued from a disaster, from, from impending doom. And it's important that we understand that sometimes we think that good news is like happy news. Like, you know, my, my world's going not bad. And now I hear that I get to go on an all expense paid trip to Mexico. Like, like that's happy news for me. But that's not good news. That's not gospel. Or maybe you heard about this, uh, uh, this, uh, this teenage girl in Ontario. Her grandfather, when she turned 18, her grandfather said, well, you should go buy a lottery ticket. And her very first lottery ticket turns out that she won $48 billion. Now, that's happy news, but that's not gospel. That's not good news. Gospel is when you get a cancer diagnosis that is very bad. The doctor phones you and says, we're looking at the x-rays and it's not good. And you begin to, to think about the implications for your life and, and, and the possibility that in a year or two, your family won't have you around and that you are going to die much younger than you ever thought. And, and you, all of these things come into your mind. And then you pray, you cry out to God and you ask some friends to come and pray. And, and then a few days later, the, the doctor phones again and with tears, he says, the, the test that you did to confirm it all, show that in fact, there is nothing there. See, that's good news. That, that's gospel news. Or if you go bankrupt and, and you've lost your business and now the bank is in the process of repossessing your home and as you are packing all of your possessions in this home that you raised your family in, that you built, that you poured your life into, and as you're packing them all into the boxes and you're about to move out, the phone rings and someone says, wait, wait, wait. I've got the money to pay off the bank and to start your life again. I mean, that's good news. That's gospel. Or, or you built an entire career. You've worked so hard. You're at the top of your game. And then you make some mistake. And it looks like you're going to lose your, not only your job, but your career and your reputation. And then, and then something happens. And they say, no, no, no. Not only are you forgiven, but we're going to promote you. We're going to give you a place of even greater honor and authority and responsibility. See, that's gospel. Gospel. It's from death to life. It's from devastation and destruction to hope and a new beginning. It's the kind of news that causes you to weep tears of joy and gratitude. And see, this is the word that Paul uses to apply to what God does as a solution to sin. Because sin is, brings destruction and ultimately death into our life. We are doomed because of sin. And Paul says, no, no, I have good news. New life, hope, a, a new beginning, rescue from devastation in your life. And so before Paul launches into a conversation about, about sin and what it's all about, he reminds those he's writing to and us as well that of the power of the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me. Romans chapter 1 again. We're going to pick up what Paul says in verse 8. Here's what he writes. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul begins by celebrating the fact that the gospel is already established and growing in the city of Rome. Because you see, Rome was like the center of the ancient world. As the famous saying goes, all roads led to Rome. It was, the, it was the center of power, the engine of the empire, the source of so much thinking and culture in the ancient world. It was the greatest city in the empire. In fact, it was referred to as the eternal city. And, and masses of people from every stage and walk of life gathered there and lived and worked there. It was the center of worship of the emperor. It was the center of worship to the, to the Roman gods. And yet in the heart of that city, there was a vibrant, growing community of people that had been changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, seven years after Paul writes this letter and sends it to the church in Rome, just seven years later, during the great, or just after the great fire of Rome, when Nero is looking for someone to pin the blame for the fire on, he chooses the Christians because the church is growing so rapidly and their faith is already widely known among the people of Rome. Paul celebrates the fact that at the very heart of the empire, in a place that most people thought that the gospel would never take root, it in fact is growing rapidly and beautifully. You know, a number of years ago, uh, New York Magazine wrote an article along these lines. It asked this question, it says, why is it that so many New Yorkers are flocking to become evangelical Christians? And the article centered on a particular church, one of the many churches in New York, uh, this one called Redeemer Presbyterian Church, led by a well-known pastor named Tim Keller and his wife, Kathy. And... Um, and, and the article, uh, the author of the article basically was writing and saying, what is it about this place? Because, because all of these New Yorkers are attending. And, and what he was shocked about was the kind of New Yorkers that were attending. He said, he said when he went there, the, the pews were filled with the people that he thought would have been least likely to be interested in faith and in religion. Doctors and bankers and lawyers and artists and actors and designers. And on top of that, he said, not only that, he said, there was a few older people, but the majority of people there were in their 20s and their 30s. No one would have thought. In fact, Tim Keller himself says that when, when he first went to plant a church in downtown New York in Manhattan, most people, Christians included, thought it was a fool's errand. I mean, you know, church was about being moderate and conservative and, and downtown New York was about being liberal and edgy. And, and, and church was for, you know, was for families. And, and yet most of New York is young singles and non-traditional households. And above all, church is about belief, about faith. And, and New York City is, a, you know, filled with skeptics and critics and cynics. And the middle class had left New York and, and what was left were the sophisticated and the hip and the, and the wealthy and the very poor. And the thinking was that they would laugh at the message of the gospel. And in the midst of it, this reporter found this church 
that was deeply orthodox in his faith, that held to the teachings of the Bible about the virgin birth and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the problem of sin and, and the power of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. And in this church, it was growing and active. And all kinds of people were finding new life there. In fact, he went on to mention that within that same time period, over 65 new churches were, were growing in New York City and, and more in the surrounding areas, the surrounding boroughs. And in fact, another uh, report from the, a couple of years ago said that there was over 100 churches started in the, in the city of New York by people coming from Africa. Amazing what is happening in the city of New York. And not only in New York, in other world cities like London and other places like that. And here's the point that Paul makes as he begins to address the church in Rome. And it's just as true today. And that's this. The gospel is taking root everywhere. Everywhere. Did you know that God is at work in powerful, amazing ways that you would never expect? The, the gospel is going forward, not only in places like middle America or in, you know, in the far corners of places like Asia and Africa and South America, but it's also going forward in the midst of large, highly educated, incredibly sophisticated cities in the world. In Paul's day, it was Rome. In our day, places like New York and London and Seoul and Beijing and all kinds of different places. We should be aware of that. I mean, one of the challenges for us people in general is that we just get so focused locally on what's happening and the laws that are being passed and the, and the problems and the issues. And we sometimes need to lift our eyes and say, oh, yeah, but God is at work all over the world. And the problem is the news of what he is doing isn't easy to come by. Because it doesn't come on your news feeds or your social media feeds. Because that's not the kinds of things that those particular organizations celebrate. But you should watch. Every once in a while you find these whispers, these little reports, these documentaries of what God is doing in all kinds of places, profoundly around the world. The gospel is taking root and going forward in all kinds of places. And that's what Paul begins by celebrating here. Verse 8. Verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And then he goes on to say this, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now the Apostle Paul goes on to say, hey, church in Rome, I want you to know I'm praying for you. Daily, regularly, I'm lifting you up before God. And I have wanted, I've longed to come to see you, but God... God has not allowed me to come to this point, but I want to come. And then in verse 14, he goes on to say this. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul now says that he is under obligation. Literally, the word is he's indebted to preach the gospel. He must pay back the, the, the I mean, he must pay 
this debt to, to preach the gospel both to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. Now, when we read that, we kind of gloss over that sentence. Yeah, good for you, Paul. But it would have been a jolt in the ancient world when they read that. Because, you see, the ancient world was highly stratified along social lines. And, and, and those who were Greeks, when he talks about the Greeks, it's not meaning people who were born in Greece and speak Greek. Rather, he's talking to the sophisticated, highly educated upper class those who could afford an education in, in the Greek way of thinking. This was the ruling class. This is the people who were considered to be the wise. The barbarians, on the other hand, were the extreme opposite. They were the, 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 the inferior, the, the uneducated, the lowly, the foreigners, those whose primary role in Roman society was to be slaves. And the only obligation that anybody had among these groups was the obligation of the, of the barbarians, those who were considered foolish, to serve the Greeks, those who were considered wise. And now Paul comes and he says, I have an obligation to preach the gospel, not only to the sophisticated, to the ruling class, to the leaders, but also to the barbarians, to, to those who come from this different class. Because, you see, the gospel cuts through social hierarchy. The gospel levels the social landscape. The gospel insists that all humanity stands before God on equal terms. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are offered the gift of salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, this is one of the reasons why the, 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 God, the, the doctrine of sin is important. I mean, there's many reasons, but one of them is that it is an, a robust affirmation of equality. What Paul says, what he's going to say in the next couple of chapters, time and time again, that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. It actively subverts these social hierarchies that, based on this idea that some people are inherently better than others. You know, in a society that was profoundly hierarchical, that was rife with racism. The gospel was anti-racist. It, it, it didn't matter your ethnic background, your gender, your sexual orientation, your economic or social status, your education. It didn't matter whether you're slave or free, Greek or barbarian. The message of the gospel is that everybody has sinned. We all stand on the same level before God. We're all doomed before God. But the message of the gospel is also that Jesus came to give life and salvation to everybody, regardless of who you are. You see, human equality is affirmed in the Bible not only at creation, but also through the idea of sin in the gospel. A number of years ago, a number of years ago, uh, uh, one of the last aristocrats of the Austro-Hungarian Empire died. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, if you know European history, used to rule much of Europe. It was so powerful. And because this man was of that, sort of the end of that line of those aristocrats, when he died, they had for him a very formal funeral. And they went to bury him in the same Capuchin monastery that all of the forebearers of him, all these great kings of the Austro-Hungarian Empire had been buried in. And so there was this procession that led up to the monastery. 
And at the, at the, at the coffin was there, carried by the pallbearers. And at the front of the coffin was a herald. And when he arrived at the monastery, he pounded on this door. And the door was opened by a single monk who opened the door and asked, who demands entry? And the herald said, the herald enters, it begins this thing. He lists the titles of this man who had died. And he goes, he begins this way. He says, Otto of Austria, former crown prince of Austria-Hungary, Prince Royal of Hungary and Bohemia, of Dalmatia, Croatia, Slovenia, Galatia, Laudemaria, and Illyria, Grand Duke of Tuscany and Krakow, Duke of Lorraine, of Salzburg, Styria, Katharina, Carolina, and Bukowina, Grand Prince of Transylvania, Margrave of Moravia, Duke of Silesia, Modena, Parma, Pianza, and the list went on and on. He listed all of the titles of this man. And when he was done, the monk said, we don't know him. And he closed the door. And so the herald knocked on the door again. And the monk opened the door a second time. And he said, who demands entry? And this time the herald listed all of this man's civic and political achievements. He said, he's Dr. Otto von Habsburg, president of the Pan-European Union, member of the European Parliament, holder of multiple honorary degrees, and he listed all of the degrees that this man had. And once again, the Capuchin monk said, we don't know him, and he closed the door again. And for a third time, the herald pounded on the door, and, and, and he opened the door, and he said, who demands entry? And this time, the herald said, Otto, a mortal man, a sinful human being. And this time, the monk reached down and unlocked the gate and opened the doors and said, he, uh, so may he come in. In other words, it doesn't matter. The, the, it's just this beautiful story. I mean, no, it doesn't matter how powerful you were, what titles you've got, how much you've accomplished, how good you've been, where you've been. In the end, we're all just mortal men and women, sinners before God. The gospel cuts across all human hierarchies all racial and economic and political lines. It's not just for Jews or for Gentiles. It isn't just for the rich or for the poor. Not just for the highly educated or, or, or the, you know, the, those who aren't. It, it, it's for everyone, those who vote conservative and, and liberal and NDP. I mean, it, the gospel, here's the message. The gospel is for everyone. And so Paul says, because of that, I'm so eager to come to Rome and to preach the gospel there too. And so this is what he says next. In verse 16, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now, Roman society was a, what historians and, and sociologists call a honor-shame society. In other words, the most important thing in that society was not, you know, money, or power, or sex, or fame, although those things were all highly valued. But, but the most important thing was honor, personal honor, family honor. And the worst possible thing in that culture, in that society that could happen to you, would be for you to be executed as a common criminal. It was the ultimate sign of shame. In fact, in the ancient world, there was three ways that they did uh, you know, capital punishment executions, either by being beheaded, burned at the stake, or crucified. 
And by far the most brutal and painful one of those, and the one that was considered the most shameful of all, was the process of crucifixion. Nothing was considered more shameful. Nothing was more a sign of the abject and utter failure of a person's life than to end up crucified. Which is a bit of an issue because at the very heart of the gospel was the death, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as well as the resurrection. And the result was that within the Roman culture, there was a great deal of ridicule and scorn and mockery poured upon those who are Christians. In fact, uh, there is this uh, famous, uh, this famous graffiti that was found on the Palatine Hill guardhouse wall uh, that the archaeologists have dated to about the second or third century when a great number of Christians were arrested and imprisoned for their faith. And here's a picture of this, of this graffiti. You can see it. It's a picture. Uh, the graffiti is of a man uh, on the cross. But instead of his head, there's a donkey's head, which represents stupidity. And beside him is a picture of a man raised with his, his arms raised in adoration to the figure on the cross. And underneath it, in poor Greek grammar, because all graffiti is written, apparently, with poor grammar, are these words, Alexamenos worships his God. And clearly what this graffiti is, is that the guards were mocking a Christian named Alexamenos who was imprisoned for his faith in Jesus Christ. And they're saying the ultimate shame. How could you be so stupid to worship somebody who died on a cross. And yet when the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Why? He says this, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Because the gospel changes and transforms people's lives. Because although the gospel appears weak and although it seems shameful in the eyes of many, it is in fact the power of God to bring salvation to all who receive it. Paul says, I have seen it. In fact, Paul writes in another place to the church in Corinth, uh, he wrote this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and such were some of you. And Paul would put himself in that same category. Paul himself, I mean, he, he murdered Christians. He persecuted people. He would say he's the worst of sinners. But he says, look, I know where you came from. I know the lifestyle that you lived. I know how sin had caused so much grief in your world. He says this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Paul says, I've seen the power of the Spirit of God to change and transform lives. So I'm not ashamed of it. Not at all. It's, it's this powerful thing. And that power is at work today all throughout the world. I mean, wealthy, powerful Wall Street bankers changed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peasant farmers in the, in the far parts of Africa changed by the power of Jesus Christ. Middle-class families in South America, people languishing in prisons in places like Iran, all over the world, 
And right here as well in Maple Ridge Pit Meadows. I mean, there is, there is no shame in the gospel because it is the power of God to change and transform people's lives and to give them salvation. And when Paul speaks here of, of salvation, he's not just speaking of the moment of conversion. He's not just talking about a prayer that people pray. No, no. When Paul speaks of salvation, he has two things in mind. First, a salvation from something. A salvation from the wrath of God that is due to us for our sins. This is something that happens at the end of time, on, on judgment day. But the other part of salvation is salvation to Salvation to a right relationship with God. Salvation to a life that is being changed and transformed and, and set free from the power of sin on our lives here and now. And that, that, that part of salvation, that's an ongoing process. That's why at another place, the Apostle Paul writes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's a process. You know, the other day I was talking to one of the guys in our church. He came to faith in Jesus about five years ago. And man, the change in his life has just been so profound. And he was telling me, and, and he told me I could share this with you. He said, you know, he said uh, he poured a lot of love and, and care into one of his nieces who was a little bit estranged from some of the other people in the family. And, and he, just, he just cared for her and, you know, just, just was so good to her. And then uh, a while back, he needed surgery and he needed someone to pick him up from the hospital and to drive him home afterwards. And he asked her and she said, simply said, no, no, I'm not doing it. And it hurt him deeply. And he said, he said, not long ago, she contacted him and said, oh, my, there's something wrong with the brakes on my car. Would you, would you help me? Because I'm worried about, you know, getting taken advantage of by the mechanic and, 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 and would you help me? And he said, he said, okay. And he told me, he said, he spent two days on the phone with a mechanic and back and forth and worked it all out. In the end, he saved her over $2,000 on her mechanic bill. And he said to me, John, he said, five years ago, I would have never done that. Five years ago, before I met Jesus, she phoned me up. I would have said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really busy. Good luck to you. Click. Now, he's the first to say that he's not a saint. I mean, he struggles like the rest of us. He's on a process. But it's this beautiful picture. This is what God is doing. He's changing and transforming and, and shaping his life because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ in his life. And the same is true for you. Sometimes it's hard to see, but God is at work slowly but surely bringing salvation into your life. It's the power of the gospel. Paul says this, verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed to us. Now, when he talks about the righteousness of God, he means two things. It's two sides of the same coin. First, he's, when he talks about the righteousness of God, he talks about the character of God, his holiness, his rightness in all that he does. God's rightness is evident to us in the gospel because we see it in Jesus' life, in how he lived his life, a perfect, sinless life. That's the righteousness of God. But then the second part is that the righteousness of God is revealed to us because when we receive the gospel. 
When we accept that Jesus, this perfect, sinless Son of God, suffered and died upon the cross, then that righteousness is given to us. It's, it's imputed. It's imparted to us. Meaning not, therefore, that we don't sin. That's not what the gospel teaches. We still struggle with sin. But rather that when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of God in us. And therefore, we can be in a relationship with God. Paul says that through God, the righteousness, or through in salvation, uh, or sorry, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed to us. And he says that the way that we receive that is through faith. He, he ends this section by saying, The righteous shall live, shall find life through faith. You see, when we put our faith in God, He, he imparts His righteousness to us, it's what He does. For us, because we could never be good enough. I mean, it doesn't matter how good you are. You, you could never meet the righteous standard of God, which is perfect holiness. I mean, we have, we have enough trouble just trying to change little things without trying to meet this perfect standard. And so the gospel, the good news, the joyful message of the gospel is that you can be right with God. You can find salvation from the the punishment due to your sins because of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and because of his resurrection. And today, some of you, some of you who haven't gone to this place, today I believe that God is speaking to you by his spirit to say, today is the day. Today is the day where you should invite me into your life. Today is the day where you should put your faith in me. Today is the day where you should allow my spirit to come into your life and to begin to change and transform you into the, into the image of, of Jesus. Today is the day that you find salvation in your life. And so if that's, that's you, in fact, I, in fact, I want to invite everybody. Would you bow your heads and we're going to pray together. But, but if that's you, I want you to just pray this simple prayer. You pray it silently in, in your heart. You just pray it after me. And this is how you start this process of, of God at work in your life. You pray this way. God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I mean, a sinner just like every other human being alive now or ever has lived. But God, I, today I acknowledge before you that I have sinned against you. And God, please forgive me of my sins. Because I know that Jesus paid the price for me by dying on the cross for my sins. And God, I put my faith in you. And God, I ask you to send your Holy Spirit to come and to live in me and to change and transform my life, change my heart. Because, God, I want to follow you now. I need your help in my life. I need you, God. And so I give myself to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, if you prayed that prayer, God has come into your life. The gospel, the good news has come to you. And you, God, will begin this process of working and changing and transforming your life. He will give you a new life. You have become a new creature. And if, if that's you, then I just want to encourage you. I mean, let somebody know. Tell the person beside you. Uh, talk to us. Uh, you know, if you're listening online, send us an email. We just uh, love to pray with you, bless you, and just encourage you as you follow what God is doing in your life. All right? God bless you. Let me say a prayer for you. God, we thank you for the message of the gospel. 
God, we thank you that the gospel gives us life, gives us salvation. It is the power of God. And God, that it is going forth all over the world in all kinds of places, but also right here among us, right here in our own hearts and our lives. And so, God, we bless you today, and we thank you, and we honor you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming and joining us today. I want to send you with these words from the Apostle Paul. He writes them near the end of the book of Romans, after having explained the gospel in all of its depth and all of its beauty, having dealt with sin, but also faith and new life. Here's what he writes. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.